Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barabee, director of the Naval Academy Museum. Stan Fisher is a commander in the United States Navy, a permanent military professor of naval and American history at the United States Naval Academy. Before transitioning to the classroom, he accumulated more than 2,500 flight hours as a Navy pilot, mainly Seahawk helicopters. He earned a commission through the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps in 1997 and has deployed on frigates, cruisers, and aircraft carriers. Stan Fisher is also a qualified operational test pilot, Seahawk weapons and tactics instructor and maintenance officer. He's completed tours of duty in engineering and acquisitions at the Naval Air Systems Command, and he's a past recipient of the Samuel Elliott Morrison Naval History Scholarship and was awarded a PhD from the University of Maryland in 2019. When not teaching or researching, he enjoys spending time boating on the Chesapeake Bay with his family and friends. And his new book is Sustaining the Carrier War. Stan, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you, Claude. I know that's a, that's a big travel distance coming across the street from Sampson, where you and, normally teach. And it was raining today, so uh, double double duty. <laughs> uh, and I also should say congratulations. You were selected for captain. Thank you. Excited about that. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Excited. How long have you been teaching here? Is it five, six years? Uh, I got here in uh, July of 19, so going yeah. on my uh, fourth year. Yeah. Four, four. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the Naval Academy, what is a permanent military professor? That's a good question. Well, uh, a permanent military professor is uh, an officer who has spent uh, most of his career in the fleet uh, as a uh, as a qualified uh, warfare officer. Uh, in my case, it was uh, aviation, but we also have uh, service warfare, submariners. Uh, we have uh, also SEALs, and we basically apply for the program. Uh, we look at... Uh, the, the latter stages of our career, once you are selected for 05, you are eligible to uh, compete for the program. We put in a standard package of uh, our desires and what uh, what school or what uh, discipline we would like to teach in. And uh, it goes to a board, and uh, they, they look at our records. And if they feel that we can complete a Ph.D. in the uh, requisite amount of time, which is uh, for... for uh, liberal arts, particularly uh, civilian institutions, the Navy gives us four years. If you go to a uh, Navy-funded school, i.e. the War College or NPS, you get three years to do it. So um, once we're selected, then we have to get actually get into a Ph.D. program. After that, um, it's four years and back here with a complete dissertation defense and a uh, degree in hand, and then we start teaching. So and you can teach until 60? Statutory retirement. So it would be a 28 years in for 05s mm-hmm. and 30 for 06s. So now that you're going to be you're going to be promoted to 06, you were just recently selected, then you can yes, sir. the right to 60 years old? Or 20, uh, sorry, for 30, 30 years. 30. So uh, I will be in my early 50s. Uh, early 50s. <laughs> this is what I expect. So 2027, I'll, I'll be here <laughs> to, uh, to get that class across the uh, stage. <clears throat> uh, you flew Seahawks. I did. Did you fly the Bravos? I flew a lot of Bravos. So that was oh. the majority of my time. Beautiful, beautiful aircraft. Yeah. I. Uh, <laughs> uh, were you East Coast or West Coast? I was both. Really? Yep. Um, uh, yeah, I had the pleasure of uh, flying with the 60 Bravo pilots. In fact, the first time I, I flew in one off the ship, uh, off might have been off, yeah, it was off Sumatra. And, uh, you know, our air boss, Jason Burns, was was piloting. And uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, I kind of felt like Jack Ryan and Hunt for October where that, mm-hmm. they're in the storm and that, that thing's shaking. And I'm like, Jason, how, or a boss, how, how old are these platforms? He goes, yeah, these two, they're the oldest in the fleet. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, thanks. Uh, Jason yeah. and I went through a WTI course out in oh, really? the, uh, the the Top Gun version for uh, for helicopter pilots together, and then we were in HSL 49 together as well. Uh, my last tourist department, he was the XO. Oh, no kidding. And so uh, he and I he and I go back, uh, Burns yeah. and I go back a ways, and uh, we, we both love that aircraft, and... Uh, you know, it's a it's a small world. The fact it, that you flew with them, it's a very small <laughs> world. Yes, uh, I love the forty nine guys uh, that you know, Squeak Somerville, and and there's just so many guys in there that. Yep, I was in forty nine. Uh, really, that was yeah. my department. That's fantastic. <clears throat> All right. Opians. First question. Okay. In your acknowledgments, you acknowledge Jim Bradford. I'd say, uh, well, Jim Bradford, uh, he has been uh, he's been a mentor to so many of us in the naval history world, uh, military history world in general, but particularly here at the Naval Academy. Uh, going through his uh, his time here, where he was uh, on board as a uh, a professor and uh, visiting, and then through his time, obviously at Texas A and M, he uh, he is he's one of the he's one of the godfathers, I guess, of our of our community, so to speak. And uh, he and I 
first cross pass at McMullen Symposium. Which is the, which is the biennial uh, Naval History Symposium here at the Academy that the History Department hosts. Yes, uh, 2019, and I had uh, I had known about him, and I realized I'd seen that the uh, the Naval Academy and many of the ROTC units use his uh, his edited volume of Sea Power. Mm -hmm. Uh, for there are naval history classes, so I, I knew I knew him from that, and uh, he approached me uh, just in converse, casual conversation about my uh, dissertation and my desire to turn it into a, a book. Uh, he had my my advisor John Samita had mentioned if I do run into Jim Bradford, please please talk to him, and I did, and and so he coached me along, and we uh, we discussed it, and he took a look at some of my drafts, and. Uh, you know, from that point on, he just uh, he said this would be a great a great book for his series mm -hmm. over with uh, US and I. He wants to press. Now, Jim, Jim is you're right. Uh, a men he's one of those mentors to so many of us. You know, you know he's like on the same level, say Craig Simons mm. or uh, absolutely a few other folks who just who've just been so decent with their time and guidance for so many of the naval historians of our generation and the next generation. I want to read uh, a paragraph. I, I don't normally read a lot from, from the books, but first of all, I really, really love reading your book. I learned a lot on this one, Stan. Uh, the ability of the U.S. Navy to fight a protracted war throughout the Pacific Ocean in World War II was not solely the result of technology, tactics, or admiralship. Naval aviation maintenance played a major role in the U.S. victory over Japan. Naval aviation leadership throughout the period between the world wars focused on the improvement of technology and tactics rather than training a new and, in the event of war, necessarily large cohort of enlisted personnel. Aircraft maintenance was an afterthought for much of the era because of the small number of, air, of carriers and aircraft. When the United States realized a two-ocean naval war was imminent and a drastic increase in the size of its aviation fleet was ordered, the Navy was forced to reconsider its earlier practices and forge new policies and processes. The naval air war against Japan did not achieve sustained success until enough American aircraft technicians were in place to support the fast carrier task force doctrine. The U.S. Navy was not ready to fight a protracted war at sea until its carrier aircraft technicians were trained and in place. For 80 years, uh, there have been hundreds of naval historians, maybe, I don't think thousands, but hundreds. Why have aviation technicians been overlooked in <laughs> history when you know when we when we ask midshipmen in their you know in their uh, final exams you know what who was who was the major player in world war ii what what factors led to the u.s victory in the pacific uh you see all these books about nimitz or spruance uh um or uh, you know the t last of the tin can sailors this is the first book about the aviation technicians yes yes why'd you choose this how what how, what was that moment that you said this is what I'm going to write about. Well, I got to give a lot of that credit to John Samita, Dr. Samita over at the University of Maryland. We, uh, we, were, we were scratching our heads as I started my Ph.D. program over there and uh, trying to figure out a, a good topic. You know, as, and, and he knew that I was an aviator, um, mm -hmm. where I was coming from. And, um, you know, we, I asked him some, some ideas about uh, World War II, and, and uh, I asked him, you know, is, you know what, what's out there? What, what is out there? Uh, or what's not out there? And uh, he said, you know, looking at my my quote, resume and one of my uh, time as a, as a department head, I was a maintenance officer for HSL 49, which I came back from deployment. And uh, he said, what do you what about aviation maintenance? And so that started kind of the uh, the, the discussion and the thought process of, hmm, there's there's really not a whole lot out there of aviation maintenance. And I said, well, let me let me dig into it and see what see what I can find. And so as I started to dig, I came up with nothing. Absolutely. Which would discourage most people. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> nothing. But, uh, yeah, and, and as a pilot, you know, uh, I, I, I can't give enough credit to the, to the maintenance crews, to the, the maintainers and uh, the infrastructure and logistics and the supply and all that. And so I said, you know what, I wonder where all this started. Where did this all come from? And John said, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it'd be a really interesting topic if you could find out what went on when carriers came into the fleet because carriers in the entrance of them is a very interesting topic that many have written about the 1930s and the interwar years you know how we went from a battleship navy to a carrier navy so that that was that was all my the forefront of my mind i said well there okay there's another piece to that and so uh 
started digging and I, and I can't recall exactly how I, you know, figured out that there are, there are official records of this, of this stuff. Uh, but it's all buried away in, uh, in, in archives, right? It's the administration record. And I, and I think that most people, um, many, many naval historians know about the administrative records of World War II for the Navy. They know they're there. Um, but to be honest, this type of material isn't always the, uh, the hottest selling or, as we say sometimes, it's aviation maintenance is, it's, it's down and dirty. It's, it's hard work. It's, it's gritty. Um, and it's just not sexy. It's not uh, an aviator with a, with a leather jacket and, uh, you know, with his hair blowing back or getting out and high fiving, walking across the tarmac saying, uh, you know, I feel the need, the need for speed. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not that it's, uh, it's turning wrenches. But that individual can't do what they do without, you know, absolutely those guys, it's just really amazing. You know, I used to watch them working on the, the uh, 60 Bravos on the ship, and I was just amazed that they, first of all, they were able to keep up these, yeah. you know, these older aircraft, and, and that's a testament to them. And and I think this this book is a real tribute to them, and you, you really succeeded in this. Um, and, and also, I want to point out Professor John Samita, because it's a real credit to him that he was able to identify something within your career that would apply to something that hadn't been studied before. I don't know if you encountered this, but you know, we all when when we have our uh, our books submitted in peer review, uh, you know, there's always that dreaded reviewer B. Mm-hmm. And in my case, reviewer B was well, he writes like a naval uh, he writes like a naval officer, and he approaches it like a naval officer. And then he says, when I realized that he was a naval officer, you know, you know, maybe he should be more academic. And but it was because of my Navy background that I looked at operations, that I looked at strategy, that I looked at force structure in a way that hadn't been looked at before for my book on wide seas. And so I think it's a real credit to, to John uh, that that he identified and he encouraged your experience. And I think it's really interesting because when you look at a lot of naval historians from the 20th century, start you know starting with Samuel Elliott Morrison, going to Craig Simons or going to you and B.J. Armstrong in the history department, all of them ha- brought this naval uh, officer aspect, even if they were junior officers like Craig, which Craig left as a lieutenant. Um, I, th- I think there's a real benefit to at least having a baseline of writing what you know. Right. I, I intentionally tried to write this for, um, for an, a, a very broad audience. was not looking to put something in that's only going to be um, on the shelf of a Ph.D., uh, I wanted something to be on the shelf of an AE3, you know, uh, or an, an AM2 or, or a retired master chief um, maintenance material control officer. Someone like that who uh, who can pick this book up and, and look to see, well, this is where we came from. I.e., this is, this is where naval aviation maintenance as we see it today in the 21st century, 2023, you know, where did this... The, the mindset and, and the way we do business, where did that all come from? Because there's plenty of stuff about aviators and pilots and, and uh, the, the history of, say, helicopters or, or, or planes, uh, but there wasn't anything to really give that story to your, your average 20, 22-year-old uh, kid that's just enlisted out of boot camp, out of A school, and he's you know on the flight line turning wrenches, changing oil, doing servicing on, uh, on your 60 Romeos now or your F-18s or your F-35s. How do they train? I mean, uh, and, and I, could you walk us through how did they train, say, in 1940 versus how they trained in 1945? Because in that very abbreviated five years, things change a lot for the United States Navy, especially with not only carrier aviation, but in the people who actually maintain the the craft. It's a great question. That's a lot. Of, uh, there, there's a lot of that in the book. Uh, I found that a very big part of uh, my research was the actual training schools or the trade schools. So, up until about 1939, 1940 time frame, most of what naval aviation maintenance was was a, a small conglomerate of uh, of schools and uh, on the job training. So there were a few few formal schools, if you will that were very un, unsynchronized or uh, did not have a, uh, a, a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, clear path to graduation, if you will. So everyone kind of did their own thing. And once 
once the uh, John Towers and the Bureau of Aeronautics realized that they were behind the power curve, as you will, with the uh, the advent of war and FDR's decision to bump up their the uh, allocation of naval aircraft from what was 3,000 to 15,000 within uh, with the realization that we're going to be at war in the next year or two. So uh, the uh, bureau brought in brought in some individuals, particularly uh, Amal, uh, at that time well, it was Captain. Radford, and uh, another gentleman by name Austin Wheelock. Is that Ar Arthur Radford? Arthur Radford, yes. Yeah. Uh, goes on to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, has a pretty good, pretty decent career, I'd say. Uh, but this is where you know he kind of cut his teeth. He was up and coming, and they designed a uh, basically revamped the training program and said that we need to have formal schools. We need to do something that is going to be a um, you know more like a a vocational school that we have now, a tech school, and so they. They kicked that into gear, particularly down at uh, Jacksonville, Florida, at NAS Jacksonville. And uh, they, they started bringing in fresh uh, enlisted recruits just out of boot camp um, who were interested in aviation, in aviation maintenance. And they would put them into schools through a, a battery of tests and, and they would start uh, and they formalized it. And they, they basically started building more schools, particularly uh, throughout the country, Norman, Oklahoma, they built one out of Memphis. Uh, you had Jacksonville, but they were located in various places uh, throughout the country. And so aviation schooling, aviation maintenance schooling became a formalized, uh, much like any, any you know, small, I'd say, community college uh, program where it was a standardized five to six months schooling. There were classrooms. There were, there were mock-ups. There were models. There was hands-on. There was... Uh, theory taught. It was it was very formalized and very standardized, and that was the difference between 1940 and by 19 really 1943. All this had kicked in gear, uh, full swing, and had continued on. And did they have to compete? I mean, look, you're talking about the uh, a, a massive mobilization. Uh, you're shifting the industrial base from civilian to military. Did the naval aviation technicians, was there a competition in getting enough qualified individuals for that uh, compared to the Army, which had, you know, a massive, massive uh, um, air component? Yes, there was a, the Army had started this a little bit before the Navy. Uh, they had obviously been, you know, it, it was it was Europe first. It was Germany first was was FDR's, uh, his, uh, his desire as we got into the war. So the Navy was a little bit behind the power curve as far as getting ramped up in the, the, the maintenance side of the house because they were a little bit behind um, as far as getting issued or ordered planes. So the, the competition, I don't think, was there between um, the Army and the Navy of getting personnel. It was more a competition within the Navy. And what was interesting was uh, at, at the time when I was started was Nimitz, Admiral Nimitz, uh, Chester Nimitz, was the, um, he was in charge, he was the commander of the, Naval Personnel Commander, Bureau of Personnel at the time. Uh, and they actually, it was, it was called the Bureau of Navigation. And uh, he was, you know, his, his, his bureau was in charge of placing people where they need to be throughout the Navy. John Towers, Admiral John Towers, was in charge of the Bureau of Aeronautics at the time. And Towers realized that he needed more maintainers. He needed more people not only in the schools, but he needed them in the actual classrooms teaching. And the two of them kind of ran, kind of butted heads on this. There was an incident where, uh, not an incident, but a situation where Towers was asking for experienced maintenance, uh, maintenance men to come back to the schools and actually teach because he had so many brand new recruits coming in that needed to take these courses. He didn't have enough instructors. And he, he had, in order to do that, he had to get permission from the, the Bureau of Personnel and, and he said, I need to bring back, you know, however many it was, I'm not sure, but uh, a couple dozen second class petty officers who were experienced in, in, uh, in aircraft maintenance. And Nimitz was adamantly against this, said, no, we're, I'm not giving you any of my, my fleet maintainers. We need to fill the ships. We need to fill the squadrons. I, I can't give you anyone to come back. So that 
that was a, a bit of a point of contention between the two of them. Eventually it worked out. They, they brought on civilian instructors uh, to do that for a while. And then they uh, eventually, as the, the enlistments went up high enough, they, uh, they were able to get rid of, you know, not get rid of, but uh, move those civilians to other roles within the Department of Defense and, and not need to actually teach. So the, the competition between, say, a mechanic that is on the surface side, mechanic, and whether it's a, a ship or, or subsurface for the, for the submarines community, and versus aviation, I don't believe there was too much of a competition. It, it was really designed on um, uh, the battery of tests and the, the standardized testing that they put them through. And uh, oftentimes they would pull the higher scores from those tests and, and offer them a position or a, uh, a rating within the aviation community. When you were going through your research, doing your research, did you find any examples of some of those tests? And what they looked like, what they were asking. No, unfortunately, did not. I, I looked hard for that, and I saw, I saw that they actually made the made the the test or the the actual grading a little more lenient as we got into the war later on the war because we needed more people. But Wanted, I didn't find any copies of it. Let's talk a little bit about the scope here because you, when you're looking at uh, sheer numbers, it's it's pretty amazing. So on a on a fleet versus escort carrier during World War II, roughly, roughly, how many aviation techs would you need for a complement on the ship? Probably the uh, on the fleet carriers, we're looking at close to six hundred, give or take. Uh, Which comprised the probably not uh, not the majority, but probably a plurality of yes, yeah. And it changed also throughout the the war as the carriers got bigger and we were able to pack more airplanes onto yeah. them, you know, uh, up to close to about 100, 102 by the end of the war, uh, versus seventy to uh, mid seventies when the, the war started. You really were looking. The Navy really looked at about eight to ten maintainers. Uh, on a f on a carrier was the kind of average per plane. So, uh, you know, as the war progressed, they bumped up those numbers, and the carriers got bigger. They had more berthing. They bumped mm -hmm. up those numbers. Now, on a, on a escort carrier, you're only looking at around thirty planes. So, uh, the numbers of, of maintainers on board the uh, your your jeep carriers or your escort carriers, you know, were about a half to uh, three quarters the size numbers. So. You know, at the beginning of the war, you've got a few carriers. By the end of the war, you've got 100 carriers, aircraft carriers in the fleet. Well, the Navy went from, uh, just prior to the war, we were less than 10,000 of our aviation technicians. By the end of the war, we had we had reached a point of about 250,000. Wow. Uh, whether they were all still oh, that's in right. the... Shore, oh, that's right, because... Oh, that's right. Shore commands. shore commands. Shore commands, There's yeah. a lot oh, of... Yeah, yeah. And I don't even touch on the shore commands uh, and yep. the, the numbers in this book. It's just, there's so much more out there with your PBYs. And, mm -hmm. and those planes require more more personnel to work on them, right? A bigger plane means more right. people. Um, but that that was what really interested... That's what, that's what, that aspect of this, as my initial research, is what, what grabbed me, was like... Wait a minute. It, we in 1937 we had seven seven thousand enlisted aircraft maintainers, and this also includes the administration and the AZs, sure. if you will. So I, when I say maintenance, they don't you know aviation support uh, personnel. Uh, and you know as the as the work, I'm like, how do we go from? And then I look at you know the numbers, and I see at the end of the war, you know, over a quarter of a million. And I'm thinking, how do we go from point A to point B? And so that really is what what caused me to, to really start digging and say, hey, I think we, we got something here that, mm -hmm. that, that no one's actually looked at. And, you know, how you take, it's, it's that, hit, that history of an industrial education, if you will, right? And, and how do you, who are, the, who are the big players? Who are the people that actually made this happen? And that's a guy like, you know, like Austin Wheelock, George Murray, uh, Daniel Brim. Those are the, these are the officers that I, that I do kind of highlight uh, that, that are working there along with Red Arthur Radford and uh, John Towers. And how they put together the, this program. To your to your question of could we do that today, I really don't know because of the the intricacy of the aircraft systems that we have today, right? The electronics, the computerized, the chips, uh, everything that's you know everything is is all computerized. Obviously, it's it's a little different back in 1942, sure. 
uh, with, uh, with steam gauges and, and, and pulleys and, and levers. Uh, I do I think that we could do it if we need to? Yes, but it would take a, a massive uh, engagement, a massive commitment from DOD to put together uh, a, a new schooling plan. Right. To the, uh, you know, you mentioned a few of the officers who worked with, with Radford on this. Um, did they leave any sort of diaries or correspondence? And also to that, uh, were you able to speak to any of the aviation technicians from World War II, understanding the fact that, you know, there were very few left today, unfortunately, because, you know, time, time affects us all. Right. Right. I, um, I did not find any, any personal diaries or personal, um, letters. I, I looked very hard for particularly Austin Wheelock. Uh, he was lieutenant commander at the time when he came on board, eventually goes on to retire as an admiral, uh, in charge, uh, uh, in charge of a, uh, a carrier a strike group after the war in the early 50s. Uh, Daniel Brim came in as a lieutenant commander as well, but as from the civilian side, he was a uh, an aviation, uh, he was a professor, basically. Uh, uh, he taught aviation maintenance and to civilian aviation um, companies and wrote books and instructional books for them. They brought him in under the reserves as a uh, as lieutenant commander to to basically standardize the the, the training standardized the schooling and he took a took a bunch of small little manuals that were floating around combined them made them all you know made a one a, a one standard book or a few standard books for the aviation maintenance schools um the enlisted side of the house i i found i, I did not speak with anyone uh face to face i i did catch a couple of the interviews of the veterans oral history project that's online and uh, and tried to try to search through there for the uh, a few that were actual uh, maintainers, but I did find I did find a few diaries um, in the archives or, or uh, photocopies of them and uh, and some digital archives of of actual maintenance men that were that served on board the ship as well as a uh, one or two self published memoirs if you will mm -hmm. from um, from some individuals particularly uh, those uh, men as well as women. I know that, you know, there's, a, there's always a question uh, about self-publishing, but I'll, I'll tell you, in the case of memoirs, I found, especially in, you know, doing research on uh, the Academy or the Navy as a whole, uh, that those can yield a lot of really good information. You know, they, it may not, it may not, the mem particular memoir may not appeal to a broad enough audience that a traditional publisher would pick it up. But there can be real nuggets in there. You know, I was reading one of a naval constructor from 1910 uh, who was an academy grad and just amazing anecdotes about the, his, his experience at the academy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I'd... I saw I saw a lot of that. Uh, the A couple that came to mind was one was a, uh, a woman that I found. Um, her name was Gladys, uh, excuse me, Gladys Marshall Eck. And she was from Dundalk, Maryland. So I'm my my wife's family is from from Baltimore. I'm I'm from Baltimore there. So I was very interested when I when I picked this, and this was an oral history that she had done with the, um, uh, I believe it was the Naval Institute, years and years ago, uh, and uh, but it's it's overhoused the Navy Yard Library right now, and uh, and she gives a a whole range of uh, a whole story of her life as a wave. So as a, as a, a female maintainer, um, the women activated for voluntary emergency service. The you, had, you had a photo of them in in the book. I uh, I do have lots. Of, yep, a good photo of the of the waves, and um, I mean, her story is is fantastic to see what what went on as a as as a woman entering a at at that time a previously only a man's world, if mm -hmm. you will, uh, in 1942, and she was part of that first class of an aviation machinist mates. And, um, you know, she said at, at these schools, I believe she was at uh, Millington for her first school. And there was 144 waves at the school at that time going through classes and various classes. There was 14,000 men at the school at that time. So you're looking at the ratio. And she said there was no wanting for dates, uh, which was her, her exact, exact words. And she said it was a very enjoyable time. Uh, it was very, you know, it was, it was, 
it was fun. She said to be there, it was fun to learn and, and fun to work on airplanes. And, and she was out there and the rest of the, they're out there turning wrenches, uh, doing the same work that the, the men would do. But the only thing is they weren't allowed to serve on ship. So, so Radford brought them in uh, with towers to, to basically fill the gaps at home here between, uh, between the coast and do the work at our training stations. So we had enough uh, bodies, if you will, to send out to the fleet and work on the carriers because women were not allowed to serve on board ships at the time. Were they allowed uh, to, were the waves who were doing this maintenance, were they allowed to be uh, sort of forward deployed at shore facilities, like supporting uh, the, you know, the Catalinas, for example? Not until the end, very end of the war, the first group of waves that left the continental U.S. were sent out to Hawaii, went to Fort Island. And uh, that is really to the extent that, that the, the waves got to, got to serve overseas. Now, the Army did a little differently. Uh, I believe they may have had some, some over in Europe, some of their air stations. Uh, but for, for the Navy and the Marine Corps, the Marine also had the, uh, the Women's Reserve. Uh, they was, it was confined to Hawaii and the contiguous United States. You write in this book, one is hard-pressed to find any significant studies on the subject of the aircraft technician or naval aviation maintenance. You, you touched upon this briefly, Stan, but can, can you walk the, the, the listeners through some of the archives and the sources that you went through? Because you, you start developing tables, and when you're developing tables on your own, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, that, that's a lot of work that you as the historian have to do to present this just this one image to the list to the readers uh to help them understand the impact of your subject walk us through that process a little bit about your you know going through the phd and and otherwise i was fortunate because most of the archives that house this material are within driving distance of of where we are today here in annapolis uh primarily College Park archives, right? So the, one of the biggest national archives, um, or the biggest national archives probably in the country that deals with this, this period of time uh, has, has a ton of material uh, from, actually I found original briefing material, briefing sheets that they would use, um, that they, the, uh, the officers at the Bureau of Aeronautics would use to brief, uh, whether it was the admirals or the uh, directors or Navy staff or even Congress, and actual hard copies of these old school, um, I'd say they're probably about uh, 16 by 24 type of uh, slide decks, if you will, but, you know, hard copy papers, um, handwritten or, you know, with, with stenciled in there. Uh, and they, they have these in the archives. And, and that's where I, I gained a lot of information with uh, the, the, the plans, the maintenance plans and how they were going to outfit the carriers as the carriers started to come online. And the question was, okay, well, what is the, what is the supply and demand plan for getting planes to the carrier when they need them, and how soon do we replace them, uh, and so forth. The other, the other great resource I found was the actual Navy Yard, the library at the Navy Yard, and the Naval H- History and Heritage Command archives. Uh, those, uh, those had a, a plethora of information, particularly on the. Um, the acquisition side of the Navy. So over at NH- NHHC, their their archives um, in in a few of the, on a few of their shelves, there's actual, uh, I guess they're they were photocopies, but they're you know the we would call them um, what do we used to call the ditto machines? Oh yeah, the, uh, uh, yeah. When we were in high school, those yes, the, the, where they would actually have to turn the crank hand- crank turn the handle. Smell to it. Get, yeah, yeah. When they came off. Well, they, they had some of these, and they were the actual um, orders, if you will, a, a plan, and, and, and someone had typed out these, I mean, and, and these, again, were you, you open them, and they're, they're about two feet long by uh, two feet wide, and you place them on the table, and it, it basically is a timeline month by month showing the delivery or the expected delivery aircraft from, say, I was looking at the VF side, so it was Grumman, and the F... Uh, the Wildcats and eventually mostly Hellcats, uh, the F6Fs. And so they had the actual documents there that I could look at those numbers. And uh, that was what was amazing there was I, I saw these numbers that just jumped off the page. They, at one point in 1944, for most of the year, Grumman was delivering almost 500 F6Fs a month 
to the knee. So try and wrap your head around that. 500 planes a month is what we were getting. Brand new planes. I mean, as a, as a pilot, uh, as an aviator, I'm, I'm thinking, man, this is, this has got to be the best thing. You know, you get a new plane every, every, <laughs> <laughs> every, uh, every few months, uh, that, that shows up at the depot and ready to go. And so these, these documents had all those numbers in there and by, by lot numbers and by cost, and it would show how much a plane would cost with, with the spare parts, without spare parts, uh, different variants. You know, you had night fighters um, that were equipped to go fly at night, those that weren't. And you could, it shows all the actual numbers. And in, in obviously in 1944, 42, 43 uh, estimates. But, you know, you can, you can do the math and, and figure out how much these planes were costing. Uh, nowhere near what an F-35 cost or an F-18, you know, uh, cost today. So they weren't as as uh, uh, as a big a drain on the economy, but it was war, right? So sure. FDR wasn't worried about how much we were spending. And the other the other place that I found a, a good amount of material was right here at Nimitz Library. We have all the uh, on microfiche all the administrative records of the war. So Larry Clemens and his staff has has those down in the old, and so it was a bit tedious of, on taking those out of the little tiny uh, three by five envelopes and, and running them through the oh, microfiche. The microfiche? Machine. It wasn't the, mi- oh, it wasn't the micro, it wasn't the microfilm. It was the microfiche. Right. The little the square. square things. Yes. Oh yeah. So I, you had, I didn't think they still had those. Yeah. We used to use those in grad school all the time. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. before computers, you know, we looked at the old foreign broadcast information system stuff, mm-hmm. but yeah. And back now where the oh. new Nautilus room is, that was where the, the microfiche right. room was. So I spent a lot of time in there. And um, running through those cards, because on those cards, there's obviously one page at a time has been been photocopied if you, and, and, put, mm-hmm. and you have to slide it through. Um, and then scanning that PDF it and putting it on, uh, you know, on my computer so I could go through and, and kind of uh, digest that material. But those those are the three big archive places. I did hit the one uh, down in D.C., the National Archives one, uh, but that was really only for the, the pre-World War II information because that they have all the World War one so right. I, I was able to grab some stuff from Moffitt and the initial plans for the carrier aviation back then you know something i i asked the phd students who or the graduate students who come on uh, to Preble hall is when you're doing the research what was that first or that one big aha moment that you you're you know you're blowing the dust off some old uh, stack of papers that nobody's seen in 80 years or something or you're going through the microfiche in this case, what was that one piece of information that, you know, the light just went off and said, wow, this has definitely got to go into the, the PhD or the eventually the book. There's the numbers, the numbers on, on personnel and to see, uh, I can't recall exactly which, which document it was, but it showed, and I, and I, I have a chart of that. I made a table of that in here in the, in the book, but when it showed that we had 7,000 or so, um, maintenance personnel, aviation enlisted personnel in, in 1937. And we had no more than, I think, 700 airplanes to the entire fleet. And then it was showing, it, it showed progression as far as the numbers of aviation personnel over the years. And I saw it, you know, it didn't go very up very much until we hit 1940. And then in 41 and 42, you know, it was it was doubling every six months, and by I believe you know by nineteen early nineteen forty two we were we were somewhere close to you know fifty sixty thousand already uh, maybe later in forty two but that that was the aha moment like okay there's there's a story behind this how do you how do you do that how do you and these aren't just people who sign raise their hand and sign up these are all qualified technicians and so. I said, there's got to be more to this than just the numbers. How did the Navy train these people? And and where, you know, kind of where did they come from, too? Which gets into, like, you know, some of the memoirs. I mean, I, I found some information. Um, one gentleman named Wilbur Walker, uh, you know, from Baltimore. Uh, worked at uh, an old, what they used to be called Martin Marietta, mm-hmm. uh, over in middle, and, and they had a plant in, in downtown Baltimore. I believe it was over in Canton, and he was working on building airplanes, uh, wings, uh, and, um, you know, it, 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 it t- he tells his story of, you know, as, as a young 19 year old black man working, 
you know, just out of high school working in, in Baltimore to enlisting and then getting, you know, on his path on, on how he gets to be an aviation machinist mate in the, in the fleet with the Navy, you know, by 1942, 43 timeframe and what he went through with the obvious being, you know, at that time, the very, very few, um, black maintenance or technicians. Uh, but, but I learned that, you know, that they weren't all just stewards and cooks like you, you often see in, in movies and, and hear about, but no, there was, there, they actually had a uh, maintenance school, uh, that was, the, uh, that was open and it was specifically just for, for black men. Uh, but at other schools, the, uh, some sailors or black enlisted men would, take classes in the same schools as as the white sailors did they just separated them by by time so oh. typically the, the the black technicians would go to their classes in the later in the afternoon or evenings whereas the whites would take them during the day so there was a a element of segregation there obviously and um but it was interesting to see that you know hey there was there was more there was more going on than what we've been told in 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 our Hollywood history. Where was their school? The the one that was specifically just for them. Chicago. Okay. So there was leagues. a mm-hmm. uh, up or actually, Chicago near Navy Navy Pier okay. area. So we had we had a bunch of schools up there for a while. Who was Admiral Horn? Admiral Horn was a uh, he was a he was an officer that was given the task by um, by Secretary Knox to to look at the, uh, the the plan of the Navy to increase or to uh, to develop the the aviation side of the Navy and what what it, what the what the Navy needs to do to basically to modernize and to be able to meet the the threat that was on the horizon and um, Admiral Horn was given the task of putting together a board to examine the, the, the current procedures of the Navy at the time and make recommendations on how to make things better and, and how to produce more pilots, uh, support, more, support more aircraft. And a little bit of it was the maintenance side of it, what to, what to do with the, uh, with the maintenance. Although I think from my research and my reading of his reports, most of it got uh, got kind of uh, most of the attention was put on the training of pilots and um, the the developing of, of the air, you know of, of airplanes and the ability and the mission of of aircraft and they kind of missed a little bit of the what do we need to do with the uh, the maintenance technician side so he put together a board the horn board so you were a sixty uh, sh sixty pilot the reality is that there's downtime that sometimes one of the craft, maybe two, aren't working, and it's up to the, the maintenance folks to be able to ensure that mm-hmm. they can come up to speed very quickly. But there is downtime. Did you find in your research uh, any impact on the new training and the, fo- the enlisted coming in in, say, 42, 43, 44? Uh, did it decrease the downtime of aircraft over time in the Pacific? Was there any correlation? Do you think? I think that the the correlation between the uh, the numbers of maintainers coming into the fleet uh, versus the the downtime, if you will, of uh, of aircraft wasn't really due to the the training. It was it was due to the um, the procedures. So the an aviation technician that came in before this period was was trained more to to fix things, right? That were that were broken, um, to keep uh, and and to also to service and to keep things from right. But as more and more as as the as more and more enlisted showed up on the deck plates that are qualified to to work in airplanes, more airplanes also showed up. And more carriers also showed up. So the kind of the what I what I found was the it's kind of a, a perfect storm in a good way that the the more trained technicians that showed up on the, on the decks, the more planes were available. So they they transitioned from fixing to just maintaining 
and no longer was like, you know, if there was something wrong with an airplane, there was a very quick process of, okay, is this worth fixing? Is this worth our time of re removing and replacing this engine? Or can we just pull another plane from down below in the hangar or request one from one of our shore stations, depots that are were scattered about uh, the Pacific? And so that became more of a the way they did things. And this is really later in the war, 1944, 1945 mm -hmm. timeframe. Up into that, we just didn't have enough airplanes. And so the, the downtime, if you will, I guess, uh, became less and less later in the war to the point where we were at, at a high, by the end of the war, maintaining a, a high 80s, low 90s percentage of readiness, i.e. out of, you know, nine out of 10 aircraft were always ready to fly whenever they needed to go. And that was... A lot on the a lot on the the quality of maintenance, but the quality of the the servicing, the routine maintenance that kept you know your your oil changes, your um, you know your 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 small little things that that needed to be done on a daily basis. Uh, they weren't doing at sea. They weren't doing big overhauls anymore. That was all done on shore, um, out throughout the Pacific Islands, and um, or they were sent back to the United States. And then if you know by the end of the war, it's what I found was there was very little repair done at all on the ships. Maybe they would swap out a propeller. Maybe they would swap out, uh, you know, some cables or do a small repair on, on a wing, uh, the skin of the aircraft and so forth. But there were so many planes available that um, it was just almost easier sometimes to push it over the side and, quote-unquote, order another one. Hmm. And that, that was a, a huge change in, in the way they did things. You know, one thing that you and I teach in Naval History, Stan, is the impact to Japan of the loss of their pilots. You know, after after Coral Sea, after yeah. Midway, after Leyte, after Philippine Sea, I mean, you have no experienced None. pilots. Uh, it'd be really, I know you didn't do this, uh, and it wasn't part of the, the mission for this particular work, but it'd be really interesting if the data existed, and it probably doesn't, on what impact the aviation maintenance community for the Japanese had over time as well, because they're not just losing their pilots. They're losing entire ship complements of aviation maintenance and everybody else when, yes. you, when these ships are gone. Yes. I, that was a, uh, you know, that's one of those things that I, that I, I started to look into and I, for me, on my timeline, it yeah. was just, it was just out of scope. I, uh, it was just a little bit outside of my, uh, my, my cone of uh, reference, if you will. And you don't read Japanese. And do I you? don't read Japanese, <laughs> you know, as much as yeah, I can get Lee Pennington up to uh, yeah. help me out here. That's always one of the tough right. parts. Uh, last question, Stan. Uh, you know, bureaucracy is, is like a large freighter. It's very slow to turn. Um, what factors or what lessons do you think today's Navy can learn from uh, what you found in your research about World War II and oh, the yeah. sustainment of our aircraft carriers. That's a great question. I uh, I have thought about that. Just being there myself and and going through uh, month long months long deployment and trying to keep two planes on the on, that are on the back of a, a cruiser. That was my particular last uh, last deployment. Uh, you know, five months trying to keep both of them ready for tasking at every time. And uh, you know what what's going to happen if the balloon goes up and we go you know, have a, have a great power conflict to the, to the level of what we saw here in World War II. Now, do we have, you know, one, I don't think that we can produce the same number of, of airplanes. I, I don't know if our industry, you know, civilian economy and the industry can, can produce 500 F-35s in a month. That's, that's just, that's untenable. And, uh, it, but if we start, if we were to go go to war and start losing airplanes at the, at you know even a percentage of the rate which airplanes were lost in the Pacific, um, you know how would we replace those and and what would we do as far as you know God forbid we lose a, a carrier and you know a thousand a couple thousand sailors as well as a a huge cadre of of skilled qualified technicians you know highly highly skilled technicians. How are we going to replace those, you know, those people and how fast and how long is that going to take? And so I, I don't really know what the what the answer is, is if it, are we are we prepared to do that? Um, I know wars become such so so precise and pro so precision uh, these days 
that I'm not, I'm not sure if we're, we're you know, thinking that far down the road, but it, it's worth it. It's worth to consider, you know, would we need to change, how would we need to change our schooling uh, of the technician in the te technical schooling world within the Navy and probably within the, uh, within the Army as well to be able to support a, um, an element of, of people that we had, out, you know, out there then. Are we going to ever have a hundred carrier Navy again? No, right. That, that's just not, we know that's not going to happen. So that's something to, to, to consider and kind of temper the expectations. We're, we're not going to have, and obviously the weapons are much more lethal, more effective than they were in 1945, mm -hmm. uh, coming from aircraft. So we may not need all those same numbers, but there really should be, you know, hopefully there is a uh, discussion amongst the, uh, those that are decision makers on what do we do with um, that next generation of, of sailors that we need to be able to work on these highly, highly complex uh, aircraft systems and what is the amount and the proper amount of training they need to get and more, more so how fast can we get them from point A to, to graduation. Our guest for this episode has been Commander Stan Fisher, professor of the in the History Department here at the Naval Academy. His new book is Sustaining the Carrier War. Stan, uh, thanks. I really appreciate your time coming over and, and talking about your book. It, it came out in March, right? It did, March 15th. Great. Congratulations. It's uh, Again, it's a great read, and uh, you know the nice thing about being in an academic community, there's always you know there's always something to learn, and I learned a lot from your book, so thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, Claude. This has been, uh, this has been fun, and I, and I hope this book does reach some people who may not, uh, may not realize there's a lot more behind, uh, behind winning a war than just a, uh, a pilot, an admiral, and an aircraft carrier. Well, you did a great job proving that. Uh, thanks again to our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Purple Hall Naval History Podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave feedback wherever you're listening to this. Have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.